Well, welcome everybody to the very first, the inaugural episode of the Table Collective Podcast. We're so happy that you're with us, and I am so thrilled to have the guests who are with me today. Um, you know, for a couple of different reasons. For one, um, I was just saying this, and um, th- these are not just words. I'm truly right now talking to some of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, but beyond how much I love and like these humans, it just so happens that I think that these are some of the most qualified people in the world to talk about Jesus and justice. Um, so that's really exciting. Uh, for those of you who have been around the table for any amount of time at all, all you're already so familiar with the work, of course, of Malika Cox, our uh, spiritual formation and justice pow- uh, pastor, and all the work that she has done around these issues and around peacemaking, uh, the path that she has uh, blazed and continues to carve out for us and the work that she's doing on the ground here in Oklahoma City. Of course, the Reverend Cece Jones Davis, um, who we miss so much with her recent move to D.C. We just had an amazing conversation with her a week ago. And, uh, of course, Cece does so many things as an extraordinary preacher, as a singer. But in context of this conversation, uh, the work that she's doing with Justice for Julius is so near and dear to our hearts. That's just become uh, just you know, just really the the heartbeat of so much of what we care about uh, at the table these days. The Jones family is so is is so critical to us. And then Shane Claiborne, and I think I can, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it is fair to say uh, that Shane has been a huge influence for all three of us in our justice journey. And of course, so many of you are familiar with Shane's work as a speaker, activist, and author. Uh, everything from his early days working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, uh, what he's uh, done with The Simple Way there in Philadelphia, founding the Red Letter Christians. He's written many books that have been instrumental in my life. I always think about uh, sitting around with a group of guys um, in a, kind of a, a, a pivotal time and doing a book study on Jesus for President that I led uh, back in the day. Uh, but of course, his most recent book, Beating Guns, is wonderful. And uh, Shane, just especially happy that you're with our table crew to talk about these things. So welcome, friends. Really is such an honor to have each of you here for this conversation. So great to be with y'all. So great. Thank you. Thank you. So good to be here. Thank you. Well, we'll just dive right in. And I was saying right before we started, I didn't want this to feel like two one-on-one or something, but at the same time, I feel like um foundations do need to be laid and i think because you know at the table we talk a lot about justice i'm sure there are people who say we talk too much about justice uh because a lot of people still think that um jesus and justice are kind of mutually exclusive and part of what i love about um each of you and your work your ministry um, really your very lives, is that it's not the kind of thing where um, because of your love for Jesus or your worship of Jesus, that there's space for justice, there's room for it. It's more like it's precisely because of your faith um, that that the work of justice then just seems to be 
inextricable. Like it's all kind of woven together. So maybe I'd start with this question. Why Jesus and why Jesus and justice? Why is it so inseparable for each of you? Because that's what it seems to be is that for, for everybody that's on this little panel that we have, that it's almost indistinguishable faith and action. Go ahead, Shane. Well, you got to be kidding me. I was I was ready to sit at your feet all day. I'm I'm not going to talk long, but I'm I'm just going to say that uh, first of all, I I love all y'all too, and it's a long commute to Oklahoma. But I'm I'm tapping, you know, I'm I'm tuning in every time I can, and I I feel like I'm a part of the table. I love what y'all are doing. Mm. Uh, When it comes to Jesus and justice thing, I think you know the scripture is just filled with. Uh, the connection between how we love God and how we love our neighbor. You know, I think of that verse, it says, how can we love the God we do not see if we don't love the the neighbor that we do see? Uh, So Mm -hmm. this idea that um, really how our faith expresses itself is in justice and compassion for the most uh, vulnerable people in our world. I think of Matthew 25, you know, where Jesus says, this is the final account of how we'll be judged. And uh, incidentally, it's not just a doctrinal test, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but it's uh, when I was in prison, did you visit me? When I, I was uh, a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in need of health care, did you take care of somebody? So, you know, I think all of those things, I, I like mm-hmm. to say that our, our works don't earn our salvation, but they demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, we can't mm-hmm. really say that we love God if we don't practice compassion and justice. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So good. Come on now. Yeah. I love it. Go ahead. So okay. Well, I, uh, you know, it's so interesting. I wasn't raised in church. I had these, uh, great justice, agnostic, amazing parents who are always about justice. And then I ended up with a very um, radical conversion coming into the church. And, you know, at the time it was great, but when I really look back, justice was a side thing. And if we really want to be honest, justice was a little bit more mercy, uh, which Mm. mercy is great, but we weren't into justice. And I will say, you know, as a new believer, I couldn't shake Matthew 25, 35. You know, I couldn't, there was no way you're going to tell me that Jesus and taking care of um, the outcast, the hurting, the broken, the marginalized wasn't at the core central of the gospel. But it was really probably when I went to, um, I went to Israel in 2013 and I was taking a class and I really started to get the context and the paradigm of um, collective sin and how much the mm. how much the Hebrew Bible and the early Christian texts are all written through that paradigm, and then it was kind of in my decolonizing my faith, I realized that um, sin. Yes, there's individual sin of self and neighbor, but really the majority of the texts are talking about collective sin. And in that collective sin, they're talking about injustice and they're talking, you know, you see the Lord come on the scene and he's talking about the first shall be last and Mm. the last shall be first. And that is a leveling of of, of, like, Jonathan, you talk about much about the mountains. made low and the valleys high. There's, there's this whole beatitudes, which I was taught was individual. And yet the Eastern church, I mean, the Eastern 
paradigm did not see um, that harm, that that sin as individual. It's like, I believe that the politics, the kingdom of God is going to be whole, both micro and macro, and it should look like institutional neighborliness. It should look like the Beatitudes. It should look like the right side up kingdom coming to this upside down world. So for me, justice is the work it's not it's just like Shane said, I don't believe it earns us anything, but I think it does it does it's the work and it's the beautiful work and that's where we get to be co heirs and co laborers. And so yeah, I can't I can't separate the two. Mm. Well, you guys are really preaching in here today. Yes. Um, you know, for me, I, I don't you know, Shane and Malika have said such amazing and eloquent things and I don't I don't know that that my story around this is is as eloquent. I just know that I was raised in uh, rural Virginia uh, in a a former plantation town um, in a place where um, in a county that at one point held the largest number of enslaved people. And that that history, that context um, um, gave me a uh, everyday kind of visual to what, um, how people were hurting and what racism looks like. Um, you know, I, I lived with my grandparents for a good part of my life. And so I remember what it was for my grandfather to go to a store and feel and, and to see him like, you know, lower his eyes. Um, when a white man passed by, I remember what it was for um, my grandparents to speak differently in the presence of white people. Um, and I just remember that mode of survival in a sense, right? And what most, what, what some would consider the quote unquote good old days. And, but I also um, remember who my grandmother was. You know, she was a. De- what they call the domestic. Um, she happened to um, be a domestic for the family, um, for the same family that owned our ancestors. And so we had a really interesting, complex relationship with that family. I remember her calling a 12-year-old sir. I, you know, I remember these kinds of things, but then I remember she would come home and uh, oftentimes a grieving family would be on her, sitting on her porch. And um, she, they would come on in the house and I would go get her, her uh, writing pad and she would begin to write. And those, those people um, represented the many lives that she touched on a daily basis because she was a literate black woman mm. uh, in, in her time. And so for 30 years, she wrote the obituaries for almost every black family in our county um, because a lot of that generation was still illiterate. My grandmother had such a way with words, such an eloquence. And so I was just kind of taught from what I saw around me. And then through impartation, you know, what is it to use your gifts in the service of other people? You know, what is it to to maximize on the 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 privileges that God has given you, allowed you to have in order to advance people uh, in whatever ways you can? You know, and so justice for me is it boils down to just making things right. What does it look like? 
and what does it look like to make things right? And as long as we live in human form on this planet, there will be opportunities to make things right. And so I don't under I, I don't understand my faith outside of that context. I have to have a public witness that is demonstration as is demonstrative of being a light in the world. Um, and I, I I don't understand it any other way. And I don't and I have to frankly say, lastly, that I've come to a place where I love but I don't respect of those who um, take on who who bear the name of Christ and and live such so selfishly, like like mm. nobody else matters. You know, the, the songs that we sing, the way we lift our hands and say, Phew, "God, thank you for blessing me." Well, that that cannot be the end all be all. And so, um, justice is for me about allowing other people's stories to live through my life mm. in a way that I can honor God and, and be helpful to them. So good. That's amazing, Cece. Thank you so much. And I loved how each of you both kind of went into your definition of justice, but then also how your own unique story has formed and shaped how you got there. I'd love to follow up with, and I want to kind of capitalize on something you said, Malika, um, and then even, well, Cece, the way you talk about um, justice as a kind of making things right. I've, you know, Malika, you you drew this contrast between justice and mercy. And I find it interesting that mercy continues to be, or even charity, and I mean, I know, you know, some people are talking about, say, like toxic charity, but basically, I mean, with, with I think we can say with almost complete consensus, no one has any real problem with charity or with mercy on the whole. You know, when you have the buckets out for Salvation Army and no one's going to say people shouldn't drop their change in there. Um, anything that's connected with with uh, charity, with uh, maybe say like giving uh, towards people who might be poor or oppressed in some way, Um any kind of acts of mercy don't tend to be controversial so much, but justice always seems to be controversial. The the language of justice, um, I, I, I hear so often to this day, man, people are, are replacing the gospel of placing faith and trust in Jesus with justice. People will object to the language of justice. What, what is it about the language of justice in particular that generates such resistance and often even particular from, from quote, Christian people. Why is justice controversial in a way that mercy or even say charity often are not? (laughs) I I was thinking, as you said that, uh, Jonathan, one of my mentors is he's almost, I think about 90 years old now, John Perkins. And he said, you know, we've all heard the saying, if you give someone a fish to leap for a day, if you teach them to fish to leap for the rest of their life. And he says, but we also have to ask who owns the pond? <laughs> Ooh, wow. Yeah. That's the question that actually mm. challenges the inequities to begin with. Right. So, mm. you know, it's one thing to practice charity and give to the poor. It's another thing to ask why people were poor. <laughs> yeah. Know? And, yeah. and um, 
you know, as Dr. King said, we're all called to be the good Samaritan. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, mm. maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. Definitely. So I, I think you know, right. it doesn't have to be an either or. I think if we pass our neighbor mm-hmm. in the ditch, we need to take care of them. You know, we, we mm-hmm. need to uh, get in there with them. But but we also uh, can be asking the big macro questions, you know, about why why there is such an equity. You know, we got less than 100 people now, 100 rich people that own the same amount as half the world's population. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's raising questions like that, 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 you know, a minimum wage and a maximum wage. And, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> those are the mm-hmm. things that ruffle some feathers. So good. Mm. You know, I think it's interesting because, you know, there's I think Desmond Tutu said, um, you know, you can pull people out mm-hmm. of the river. This is to what Shane was saying. But when you start to run up the river to figure out, you know, why people are falling in and you really go yeah. from saint to kind of heretic once you start yeah. running up the river. But well. <laughs> there's a big difference, I, you know, and I think it's really important um, in the American context that we have to look at the legacy of injustice and how and why people are poor and why people don't, you know, you have the have and have nots. And you even think of Jesus who told the parable of the reversal of fortune of Lazarus, who was begging in front of a, um, a rich man's house. And, you know, I don't think we get out and out theology out of that. Otherwise we all need to like sell everything we own and, and beg out of a rich man's house. Mm. We're get to heaven. But I think what the Lord is talking about is we're looking at this kind of um, apathy and, and appalling um, uh, poverty in front of people who have so much, you know, the, the inequality of the um, of wealth that we have in this country, we have to start to look at the legacies and often sadly and tragically um, the church has not only been complicit but often led in these inequalities and so I Mm. think when we start talking justice it scares particularly Christians who who have a lot I mean there is a, a level of comfort that we're threatening and you look at the church around the world and you can go to places like I spent five weeks in uh, Jerusalem doing research and, and you can see Christians who are the oppressed and, and they're not threatened by justice. Mm, <laughs> there, yeah. no, there is absolutely no threat there. They're crying out for justice. And when you look at the American church who has so much, you really can see that this is a threat to wealth, to comfort, and there's going to be some pain involved in what needs to happen, which is going to be some lamenting and repentance and acts of repair. So I, I do think um, that terrifies some wealthy Christians and those who are in power. And it goes back to Jesus, who said the first will be last, that reversal mm-hmm. of fortune. And you see that in the church, when the last is leading, often justice is, is primary, but when the first is leading, tends not to be much of an issue. Hmm. So good. You know, um, I always think about this and I think uh, Shane and Malika really summed it up. You know, it's really about what kind of questions are we asking? You know, there is a what question as to like, you know, what's wrong? Like what, what can we do? What, what can we buy? What supplies can we, deliver you know what date can we go and build a house like what but then there's another question asked to why 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 is it that you know 
these girls are not able to access education. You know, why is it they don't have running water in their community? Why is it that Flint's water is the way that it is? Uh, and the why questions are mess are much messier, right? We we like to be fix it people. You know, fix it and forget it. We want to stroke a check. We want to build a, a house. We want to you know. Um, do those those things, which I think are really noble things, don't get me wrong. And we want to kind of pat ourselves on the back and move along. But the same problems persist because the why has not been dealt with. And the why, is, it takes more time. It takes more investment. It takes more courage. It takes more education. It, takes, it requires a lot more of an individual to get in a ditch to really ask, ask why the ditch is there and what we need to do about it. Um, and so I think that that is that is where the disconnect is um, greatly. And, and coming up in a capitalistic society, I don't know that American Christianity and, and, and you know, trust me, this is a brand. This is a brand of Christianity. Right. This is not end all be all, all by any means. This is not the standard. But the, the brand that many of us, most of us come up in. Um, cause us to be theologically lazy mm. and cause us to be innately selfish. That's, that's the truth of it. And it, it sure enough takes the gospel to unravel those knots that are in our souls. And it takes a lot of intention. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. That's brilliant, Cece. Um, you know, when you say it takes the gospel, that makes me think, and I'm really not trying to do this all by contrast, but at the same time, I feel like, I mean, it's the first episode, and I feel like part of what we're doing with the Table Collective in general is we're trying to articulate something of what we believe is distinct about the Jesus way. Not that we think that we're doing anything novel or new, but what we think is is particular about this way of following Jesus. And I think in terms of how, you know, just how the gospel shapes these things, how the gospel shapes uh, the pursuit of justice. Because something I see in the three of you in particular, and, and I want to I phrase this carefully because I experience all of you to be extremely inclusive people who, when it comes to doing the work of justice, are going to be more than happy to partner with any and all kinds of people who care about uh, this work of, you know, again, bringing mountains low and exalting the valleys, whoever those people are. And uh, we all know people who have ostensibly uh, no sort of faith, quotation marks whatsoever, who are virtuous and kind and doing great work. Um, so there's no kind of judgment in this whatsoever. But one of the things I see is I think people might, you know, kind of look from afar and everybody wants to, you know, Everything these days, it's kind of very simple labels and, it's, you know, are you conservative? Are you progressive? And I think they would see like in people like us, okay, well, you know, you guys care about things like capital punishment and you talk about guns and you talk about uh, the environment, you talk about creation, you talk about, the, you know, you care about these things, progressives, like whatever. But I, I feel like what I see like in each of you is there's a different sound there's a different texture to what you're doing um, than I see from even progressive culture 
at large. Like I hear things from the sort of, I mean, I think the whole idea of like kind of right, left in America is really skewed, but I'll play with those words for a second. What people would identify as like a left or something. What I hear from you guys that I, I think is somehow connected with the way that you follow Jesus is different from garden variety left. And I'd love for you to just kind of articulate what you think that is. What is it about like the Jesus way in particular that where it's not just kind of, you know, about the cause or sort of getting the bottom line position of the, of, of an issue or something, right? There's something about the how or the tone, or again, the way I like to say it, like the sound that's very distinct to me about how y'all do this following Jesus. And I'd just love to hear any of you speak to that. Jane. I got my head bowed and I was ready to go come to the altar. Oh Lord. I I I would just uh you know I think what I hear from each of you, too, is something that is always on my heart, which is that when, when Jesus says the entire thing, the entire law, everything is summed up into this love, mm-hmm. love God and love your neighbor. And love is the litmus test. You know, love is, is what it's all about. Scripture mm-hmm. says that we can have faith to move mountains and speak in tongues of men and of angels and do all sorts of miracles and prophecies. It even says we can sell everything we have and give it to the poor. But if we don't have love, mm-hmm. it's still uh, empty. It's like a, you know, a clanging symbol. Yes. And so that love is what's got to fuel us. And I think that's why it's not just ideology. It's what makes everything mm-hmm. different from just like a socialism or communism is that it's a radical love of neighbor. And, and you can be, you you can be conservative or liberal and still not know poor people and still not visit mm-hmm. people in prison. Mm-hmm. And so okay. at the end of the day, it really is a relational thing. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm convinced that, you know, our biggest problem in the church is not so much a compassion problem, but a proximity problem, a mm-hmm. relationship problem, right? That we, wow. we, we can even talk about immigrants and not know any, we can talk mm-hmm. about mass incarceration, but not visit folks or write folks that, who are in jail. And, you mm-hmm. know, no. So I think that's why that's the starting point for me. And a lot of the things that we're talking about they're not issues of the left or the right. They're issues of right and wrong. And they're issues mm. of, of uh, what love really uh, requires of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's you know, how I sort of think of it. And the, the thing about the early church is that it wasn't just about sharing stuff that was important. It was that love redefines how you hold your possessions. So mm. like they literally said, if I've got two coats, I've stolen one <laughs> you know, because there are still people that are cold on the street. So it's not that my stuff's so bad. It's that there are people that really need it. So, you know, to love my neighbor as myself means to redistribute the things that I own because, because I love my neighbor and I don't, I don't want to have two coats if they're freezing on the street. Mm. Mm. That's so good. Wow. Um, well, I would have to say the exact same thing, and I promise I was going to say that anyway. But um, it is all about love. And, you know, it's really interesting because 
when I was kind of in a community where love looked very different, um, mm. it didn't look like Jesus necessarily. I'm not saying it didn't all the time, but what I really found that love is not only um, compassion and forgiving, but love can be fierce and fiery. And that's what we see from the prophets, you know, and we see um, that love has many ways of, um, of really just demonstrating itself. And that can be, you know, with Jesus is love. We know that God is love is the, um, probably the best theology, the Johannian theology. God is love. Jesus incarnate love. When, when love came on the scene, love was compassionate and loving and caring for the marginalized and the poor and love is all is Jesus. So when, when Jesus would correct Pharisees, um, that was love, but it was fierce and it was fiery. And I think that we've got to understand that even in our um, truth telling, in our um, uh, compassion, everything is is birthed out of that love. And I think we have to receive it. I really think that we can't give something we don't have, that love people love people and it's it's that simple we don't receive that love that we get which is unconditional and um and omnibenevolent then we necessarily can't give it out so i do think that's a problem with a lot of the theology is that we have that people really have a lot of self-loathing and so that turns into selfishness and that turns into uh all the works we see that are not of jesus but when we can rest and and receive love i think that comes out in our actions i will say this though when um, Jesus spoke with the Pharisees regarding the law, when it came to tithing, he said, you tithe on these things. You you um, tithe on mint, but you have mm. forgotten the weightier mm. aspects of the law, which are justice and mercy. So even in that, when we're talking law and we're talking macro, I think you can find that some of the issues were going to lean towards what might be considered a, a, you know, a sect in the society, if they are more justice and mercy, it's just kind of part of the plan. And that can, that name can change because we know Republican Democrat that has changed throughout history on which side of justice and mercy they're on. But I think at the time we're living right now, I'm going to lean towards justice and mercy, even in my macro politics, as well as my individual loving care. That's so right. ultimately love is the answer. Love is the good news, the gospel, mm. love, forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, the rest of God, all of that is the love of God. And if we embrace all of that, I think we become people of love, both macro and micro. I don't think you can splinter the gospel. Mm. 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 That's great. Um, you know, I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but that's okay. It's <laughs> my thought right now. It, it would be okay with me, Jonathan, today. If, if if nobody ever referred to me as a Christian, mm. it would be OK with me today if the word Christian was not included in my bio. Mm -hmm. Not because I don't love being a Christian, not because I don't um, not because I don't love being a Christian, not because I'm ashamed of being a Christian, nothing, nothing like that. But but what we have come to understand or know about what it is to be a Christian is not enough. And the more I delve into the work of justice by the grace of God, 
the more what it has looked like and means for me to be Christian has gone through a spiritual shredder. Mm. And I don't really care anymore about being nominal. I don't care anymore about um, hearing from, um, from, I don't really care anymore about hearing about people being Christian. And that might sound awful to people, but you have to understand I'm in a work and in an environment right now where we're working to get a a black man off death row in Oklahoma who did not commit a crime. Mm -hmm. And almost every person I encounter who has something to do with this, whether it's the DA, the AG, the governor, the permanent parole board members, um, um, business leaders, anyone that has any clout enough to do or power to do something about this Mm. is a Christian. Mm. And that badge is worn on everybody's chest with such pride, right? And what I have come to to understand mm-hmm. is that that means very different things to be different people. Mm-hmm. So I want my life to be re- reflective of the love that Shane and Malika are talking about. And I don't really care what you call me. I know who I am. I know that my choice is in Christ Jesus. Um, but I don't really care about the title anymore because mm-hmm. it it it. it um, I don't know. It's it's not saving within itself. So, mm, so good. Yeah. That, that's really powerful, Cece. And it's one of the reasons, you know, why even in phrasing that question for me, it was more like kind of the sound with y'all. Because I feel like what I feel, um, what I get is not a sense of like, it's not piety proper at all. And I, I don't know, I just thought the whole critique is really important because, I mean, we get that so much even in the teachings of Jesus. I mean, I've, I feel like <laughs> so much of what Jesus actually says and what the prophets really are always saying. I mean, isn't it always the issue? <laughs> I mean, if only getting the language right were enough. <laughs> but in fact, what we're always reading is, oh, yeah, you honor me with your lips. That's never really the problem. I mean, people, you're, oh, your language is fine. Um, And, you know, I see that a lot. Um, I I see that with the way people talk about Christianity. I see that with the kind of language that I hear in neoliberalism as well, that oftentimes it's like um, people care about getting the words right. They'll care about getting the justice words right. But to what Shane was saying earlier about proximity, it's like, oh, well, so long as you have the proper positions, the right ideas than what you do with your actual life. Mm. Whereas I feel like what each of you are trying to do, what each of you care about is the work, what's happening on the ground, where it's not, you know, ideological litmus test. Do you agree with us about the following eight things? Do you think these things in your head or believe them in your heart? Who cares? You know, like that's just not, that's just not ultimately what's, um, what's most important. You know, Cece, when you talk about, you know, hitting those walls. And I think about, you know, the kind of resistance that you face that often does come in the guise of a, of a form of, of, of Christianity. I know Shane, I'll be on that call with you a little later today. And maybe because I know this question might take a minute, this might even need to be the last one. Um, if we take our time on it, uh, but we're, we're, you know, we're, we'll be on a call later today talking about nationalism and the whole phenomenon of white evangelicals in America in particular 
and this 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 whole movement of kind of Christian nationalism that feels so dangerous. So Shane, I, I see you know we we've seen a lot of that. I've seen consistently uh, Shane in your work, and it's one of the reasons why I feel so protective of you as my friend is like you know whenever anybody comes at Shane at just about anything, I always see such a kind, loving humble response and uh that you always kind of just keep on doing the work and keep on loving people and doing what you do in community no matter what and nothing seems to dissuade you and um there is that witness of your life i I would just love to hear all of you reflect a little bit on how you're able to to keep doing what you're doing and keep your focus um when you face that kind of resistance um, without becoming, because I don't feel like anybody here, I never see any of y'all tone policing or telling people not to be angry or something, or would say that anger is bad, but without becoming bitter, without becoming cynical, without becoming disillusioned, because, you know, I feel like so many people will kind of start off in some kind of movement towards justice work, but, you know, it's easy to just kind of flame out because um, those principalities and powers, those forces out there, I mean, it's it's huge. And the magnitude and scope of the problem, it's huge. So what keeps you from just being disillusioned, from, from giving up? What sustains you? How do you keep going in the face of significant resistance, sometimes kind of seemingly from all sides? Um, I'll start there. Um, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, it is Paul talks about being compelled and uh, it's that same compulsion that for me I felt um, as a teenager that same compulsion to preach the gospel mm. you know um, people were telling me back then that women don't preach and that you know this was not possible and this and that but that never that never got in the way because I was compelled Mm-hmm. So every day I'm compelled to do what it is that I'm doing. Does that mean I'm happy about it all the time? No. Does that mean that I'm doing it always with a smile on my face? No. Does that mean that I'm not frustrated or tired? No. No, no, no. Does that mean I wake up every day with a passion? No. It means I wake up every day with a compulsion. I wake mm-hmm. up every day with a holy um, desire um, a holy fire to get up and do the next thing that God says to do, regardless of what the barriers are. And so, and I can only credit that to the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other reason um, wow. people like me and Shane and Malik and others would be, you know, out here doing these outlandish things <laughs> other than mm-hmm. the power of mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit Amen. in terms of anger. Um, I don't, I, I can't, I cannot pretend like I don't struggle with bitterness. Mm. I can't pretend like I'm, I'm like anger does not have the best of me sometimes. I can't pretend like all the work that I've got is holy at every moment because that's not the truth. Um, I think if you are in this kind of thing, then you need somebody around you that can help you with your head and your heart. Mm. You need therapy. You need some pastors. You need some friends. You need some investors. You you know you need some something that'll help you to manage um, 
what it is that you're processing on a regular basis. So I'm, I'm readily angry um, um, often. And I, I think that that has good and bad um, um, you know, consequences. The good thing is that that anger helps to fuel me to, to keep going when I'm tired. Um, but, I, but, you know, in a, on the other side, I think that anger has given me a sort of an edge that um, that my white evangelical past um, would be afraid of. Wow, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. So. That's really good. That's profound. Mm. I, I think one of the things that gives me uh, a little bit of patience and grace is looking at who I was 30 years ago <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> and, and the grace that God and yeah. other people showed me. And, mm. I, you know, in the sense that, that, that as the scripture says, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. So that it's not something that happens uh, in, in, in a moment, you know, but it's a movement of God's grace in us. And so, you know, I, I, um, I, I I would have had some major disagreements with who I was 30 years ago. I was, you know, for the death penalty, grew up with guns. My dad was in the military. Like I was very, you know, I guess in the, with the labels, I would have been considered really conservative, you know, and, and yet like over time, it's my relationships with people that are directly impacted by mm. some of those injustices that changed my heart, my love relationship with Jesus. So there's no shortcuts on that. You know, I don't know too many people. That's why I don't spend a lot of time arguing with people. I don't know many mm. people that changed their mind because they lost an argument. Mm. <laughs> <You> know <Yeah. laughs> many people that are like, whoa, I never heard the Bible verse that you just mentioned. All of a sudden, I'm mm. against guns, you know? So I, yeah, but I, I think we, we get moved in by the relationships we get moved by the courage of other people you know Mm. so um just as fear is contagious i think courage is contagious too i think of brie newsome taking down that confederate flag and you know calling kneeling down in the anthem and like all of the courage that we see from rosa parks and all through our history and we lean into that and it gives us more courage you know i think of the things that people have survived even our brother julius jones right now sitting on death row for a crime he had nothing to do with. And I'm going, man, like I get hope and courage from people that continue uh, to have that hope, despite things that I've never even experienced and can barely imagine. So I think it's Mm. staying near to those traditions um, of liberation that have survived so much that, you know, that that's part of what's happening in our country is there's this, you know, what's named as kind of white fragility that people who haven't suffered much are suddenly in a place where there's a lot of questions about who's going to hold the power and, you know, this grappling for power. So I think, you know, and that's where we can get some courage from Jesus, you know, like here is God with all of the power in the world that literally is born as a brown skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee executed on the cross like marginalized in every way like that's what the power of god looks like mm-hmm. it joins the suffering of the world mm. so good oh wow yes that's so good um both of you i mean the power of the holy spirit compelling um the bravery and uh just having relationships with people who who do endure looking to Jesus, I would say one thing for me is just getting out of my, um, 
perspectives and and even out of United States of America for a little bit because when I when I went to Ireland for a year I lived in Belfast and I was um, really very confronted with the conflict there and so I saw two groups of people who claimed to be Christian and you know you have you have the the Catholic Church and you have the Protestant Church and I actually got to do a semester in a monastery that did peace and reconciliation and we did peace walks with Catholics and Protestants and it was an amazing time but just seeing that our situation here is not as unique as we think it is mm. these conflicts that are rooted in tribalism mass by religion are really common everywhere and you yeah. know we, I was able to go to uh, in that period of time to Jerusalem for five weeks to do research on the conflict there. And again, you see so many similar things. Often you see a colonial power come in and there to really secure uh, power and resources from an oppressed group. And it seems to be um, this common theme, but we're not the first to be here. And we can actually look at other mm. cultures to see things that have worked. For example, in 1995, South Africa, um, the church, Desmond Tutu, led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where they dealt with many of the human rights violations in South Africa. And yes, it was not perfect. And I, you know, there are people who felt that they got what they received through knowing what happened to their loved ones. And there was those who felt cheated from justice. But the one thing that came out of it is everyone agrees on what happened. And that hasn't mm. happened here. We do not yeah. agree on facts at this point, let alone on the legacy of injustices. There was a Truth mm -hmm. and Reconciliation Commission in Canada in 2008, where they dealt with the indigenous boarding schools and the crimes against humanity that were committed there. And they were from 2008 to 2015, they dealt with it. And guess who was leading or who was who had to be a part of it because they were not only complicit, but led it. It was the Anglican Church. It was the Catholic Church. It was the United Church of Canada and the Presbyterian Church. And they had to listen and they had to understand and come to agreement. We don't have any agreement and we don't really at least at all have any macro um things in this country to deal with the post injustice. So we don't agree on anything. We have some great grassroots things like Brian Stevenson's lynching memorial. Um, and so many people are doing this work of dealing with post injustice, but we need a truth and reconciliation commission, or we need other forms of transitional justice. And the church needs to lead it. So we need to look at what does lament grieving really look like as a church? What does changing of thinking and changing of action, repentance look like on a macro level? What does acts of repair look like at a macro level? It looks like institutional reform. It looks like truth and justice commissions. It looks like yeah. reparations and commemorations and removing every confederate mm. statue and yes. cc talked about and this is I, i'm going to give you credit for this and i don't know if you want me to share it but i'm sorry but she said you know, she has this idea that where sundown towns once were we should put up signs of saying we are once were this but now yeah. we are inclusive you know mm. we can't mm. allow the fact that we can't believe in facts that continue in this country, we have to deal with it because time is going, it's cyclical, it's coming back. We keep going through these cycles of not dealing with the past and we continue to have these injustices happen. So I believe that we have to look outside of the American church. We have to look at other 
people who have done this, particularly at the church. And we have to begin to lead when it comes to truth and justice commissions. And, and that's what is my passion. That is what I feel compelled to. And I believe that is the biblical uh, Christian way of doing things, accountability, truth, agreement, lament, um, acts of repair, repentance. And we need to do that on a macro, micro level because the gospel, again, will not be splintered. Come on now. Lord, if I had an organ, I'd be playing it right now. Seriously, that's so good, Malika. That's so good, Malika. Well, I I want to, um, that was amazing. I want to honor each of your time because I know here's the thing, because everybody I'm talking to, they're actually are activists and they're all doing this good work today. (laughs) So I want to be mindful. I want to be mindful of that. But, you know, Malika, even as you said that, about how we how we lead in this moment. I really just want to thank each of you because Malika, CC, Shane, um, each of you inspire me in this way. And in terms of because you know that's my deal. You know, CC talked about a few minutes ago, uh, and I, I, this is so where my heart is these days. I'm not concerned about anybody's dogma too much in this moment. I don't have great anxiety about like heaven and hell, but I think like. What what's going to get you out of bed in the moment in the morning, and in terms of finding discipline and focus and finding something larger than yourself in the world that you're going to throw yourself into? And these three individuals, like they live it, they model it, and um, the way that they walk this path, um, it instructs me and it helps me. And so I just want to thank each of you for your for your witness because it just means so much and thank you so much for carving out this time uh to be with us today for this first edition of the table collective podcast it's been so so rich awesome well, it's an honor yeah. to be here thank so you so great much. let's do it again soon bless yes. y'all love, will, you. love you thank you so absolutely much. do it again and cc you're always eloquent <laughs> yes yes oh oh so so good so good okay. each of you every, everything was just so beautiful you guys well we'll do this uh, again really uh, soon and we look forward to uh, catching you guys with the next episode of the table collective very soon and again shane malika cc what an honor to have each of you love you